welcome back to the podcast. I've got an exciting guest this week that I'm sure you're going to want to hear. I'm super excited to share him with you. His name is Doug Thorpe. He's kind of one of these multi-hyphen everythings. He's been an executive. He's been an entrepreneur. He's been a board member. He's a thought leader. And what we talked about in this episode is the difference between management and leadership. I think this is absolutely critical as we come into the new year that we find ways to think about how we deal with the bigger issues, the leadership issues, because the great problems we face, especially in American corporations, but certainly even in the entrepreneurial space, are going to be solved by leadership. So I'm excited to share Doug with you. So if you're ready, let's get started. Well, welcome everyone to a revolution of interdependence. And today I get to talk with Doug Thorpe. And you're going to learn a lot about Doug over the next hour. He is a former senior executive. He's an entrepreneur. He's a board member. He's a thought leader. He's a coach. One of these multi, multi hyphenate people who has spent years in multiple industries, the financial service industry, executive coaching, oil and gas and small business as well. And because I know a lot of people listening are small business people, entrepreneurs, I think Doug's experience is going to be really, really great. And he also intersects with a lot of the work that I do with companies and individuals, which is leadership development, team performance, employee engagement, culture shift, change management. He's got a lot to offer. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot to offer the audience. So I'm excited to, to meet with Doug today and to offer his wisdom to you all. So Doug, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Will. It's a pleasure to be here. And I really appreciate you asking me to sit in. So great. So because we focus so much on interdependence and kind of helping each other succeed, we always ask guests to kind of reach back somewhere and it could be yesterday or it could be, you know, 40 years ago, someone or some group that made the difference for you. When you look at your journey, you think, yeah, that that person, man, they're they're one of the reasons I, I did well. Who would that be? Well, it's actually a short list of people, actually a long list <laughs> when I get into it. It all starts with the word mentorship. My young days were formed by the brilliance of a single hardworking mom who had the brilliance to surround me as a young man growing up with mentors. And she found volunteers in the community that were ready and willing to come alongside and help me grow and learn as a as a young boy to to move into manhood but it set a course of my own appreciation for the high value of mentorship and in my early years the list there were about 6 in particular i had a scoutmaster i had a neighbor friend i had gentlemen that my mom worked with and those were the three big ones and then a, a a usual uh, short list of teachers and administrators in my schools that were just really powerful influences on on the way I grew up and things I learned about life and business and relationships and all of that. That is great. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, it's easy to forget that we are standing on the shoulders of so many people that that helped us get where we are. So thank you for sharing that. That's a great, great share. So tell you what, let's start here, because I really love the way you think about the difference between management and leadership. And I know like in my in the companies that I work with, that is almost ground. It almost feels like ground zero sometimes because getting things done and leading, mentoring, guiding, coaching, like bringing people along in true leadership ways. Those are very different disciplines. So I'd love for you to just start with from your perspective as you're working with clients. What do you see as the difference between management and leadership? 
That's a great question. And I often begin a lot of my coaching engagements with that very question. And I'll tell a quick story. Once upon a time, I would ask that question and I would get some kind of vagary, you know, people were kind of puzzled by whether there really is a difference. I've, I've watched that phenomenon evolve. Now, when I ask the question, is there even a difference between management and leadership? Everybody categorically says, yes, there is. Of course, then my obvious next question is, all right, what do you think it is? What what does make the difference? So all the various answers aside, the answer I go to is a very simple one. I say management is about process and leadership is about people. And to evidence that people can make a career out of being a good manager, you know, getting the work put through, hitting the goals, hitting the measures, hitting the numbers. But often what you'll find in the wake of all that is some collateral damage. There are people that have been on and off the team, a high churn rate, high retraining rate, generally moderate to low morale, and and not a lot of continuity in those environments. But the person that has begun exhibiting leadership skills starts to have team morale go up. There's an esprit de corps. There's a pride in being on that team. There's a there's a connectivity in people wanting to come together and do the work together. And that's where leadership starts to shine. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I wonder what's your perspective on sort of when you think about all the workplace turmoil, great resignation, the whatever the uh, silent quitting, whatever they call that, it feels like this whole question of management versus leadership plays in there. Do you agree? Do you see some part in that? Totally. And and one of the dimensions of it is sad to say here it is 2022 getting ready to be 23. We still have people of authority in the workplace who follow a traditional command and control leadership style. Now, there are certain situations where you just have to have that. And that is pretty undeniable. But in the vast majority of situations, that particular style is just not accepted anymore. People are voting with their feet, leaving jobs where the boss insists on that heavy hand, my way or the highway kind of thinking. And, you know, that constantly questioning, constantly doubting, untrusting that that just nowadays it's really right on the edge of a hostile work environment. Yeah. How do, how do I ask this question? Is that style endangered or are we <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm not trying to be dark, but like, is, is it, is it possible that that style is going to fade away, continue to fade away? Or are there deeper sort of troubling issues in the American workforce? In the, in the global workforce? Uh, my, my humble opinion is I, th- I think it is fading away. And, and in most cases, again, not all, I, I, I do reserve some caveats. Here's a for instance. If you or I get diagnosed with a medical problem and we need to go to surgery, I want my surgeon asserting command and control in that operating room. Absolutely, sure. I don't want the nurse is winging it. You know, they need to be following a script that that surgeon has specified. That's command and control. And that's great. I I hope that happens. But in the normal work environment, perhaps what some people traditionally think of as white collar working in an office, command and control, I don't think has any place at all anymore. 
And I've actually, I'm on record in my blog of, of writing a, a, a call to action to abolish it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right on. I would join that. And we all should you give us the signature line. We'll all sign up for that, I think. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if, if it's your observation or I wonder what you think about this observation that it's almost like the world changed. And I feel like sometimes the workforce or at least certain companies are trying to catch up with the world. Like the world understands design thinking, the world understands agile and so on. The workplace seems to continue even in, even in some bigger well-known companies reward or at least seem to reward that command and control. Do you understand the question? I mean, what? Yeah, you're, you're right. I think the challenge in, in, uh, modifying that or maybe even getting rid of it is that there are some very large publicly traded global brands that have operated that way for literally a hundred years. So it's a, it's a kind of cultural legacy that's being handed down shift by shift as leaders retire and roll off and new leaders are coming on and they're, thinking that the behavior that was modeled to them is what they need to assert to be successful. And and this may be a good place for me to interject a, a fundamental observation that I've got. In modern business, and, and this has been true for the 40 plus years that I've been in business, we have a strange way of, of picking managers. We have an opportunity for a frontline supervisor job to open up and we look at the team and we pick our best producer, yeah. our, our best salesperson, our best accountant, our best technician, and we anoint them with the title of supervisor. And it Sounds like a promotion there. It is a promotion. There's money involved. And so people generally willingly take that job and they get thrust into the fire, so to speak. And we don't necessarily and categorically do a good job of training them how to be leaders at that moment. We might work with them on what's expected of the manager at that level. You know, here, here's your metrics, here's your budget, here's your reporting structure, here's your time card process, all those administrative overwhelm tasks. But we don't really talk about the key elements of leadership. And if they figure out how to do a good job at that first level, guess what? They get promoted again and then maybe again and five years in, they might be some kind of director or on the verge of a VP opportunity. They still haven't been taught any leadership. Yeah. They're still just in the conundrum of producing numbers and what the big company environment does to them. It puts them in a double bind of all of a sudden starting to expect leadership success without ever training what leadership success looks like. And then the individual is stuck there saying, yeah, but wait, what I used to do got me promoted three times and now you don't like me anymore. What's up with that? Yeah. And it becomes a very unsettling and almost a no man's land for that middle manager that is making that journey up the career path. Yeah. So Again, I'm making some very broad brush generalizations because don't get me wrong, some companies do a good job of prepping right. and training for that, but most don't really. They wait until that 
VP or director job and they say, oh, by the way, we're going to hire you a coach. Now we're going to fix what you've been doing wrong for the last five years. We broke. (laughs) Exactly. So let's do that now. Let's now I want you to be coach for for that individual. We're going to really drill down on what is a leader and what what really makes a leader in, in a company and in a corporate setting. And, you know, in the workplace, what makes a leader? And, and I want to focus on not just the skills and training, but even the personal characteristics. Like what when you think leader, what stands out to you? Well, again, a great question. And there are two ways that I approach that. And, and, and I, I do this in parallel with my clients. And for every client, we end up talking about both parts. And one is a bit of a word picture. I encourage people to understand that leadership is a huge, broad topic area. You can go to Amazon and put in the keyword leadership. And last time I checked, you got about 160,000 book references Mm -hmm. for leadership. So a lot of people are writing books about leadership. I'm guilty. I've written two of my own on it. And the usual approach is to start listing attributes, you know, we, we get into things like integrity and character and compassion and empathy and communication, decision-making, delegation, and the list goes on and on and on. I've seen lists of those attributes as short as six. I've seen them as long as 21, and it goes on and on. So what I generally, the way I address that with people, I use a word picture of the game of golf. In a, in a golf bag, regulation says you can have 14 clubs. We're not going to tell you what the clubs are, but you can have 14 of them. You could have three of the same club in there. It doesn't matter, but 14 is your max limit. Well, the good news is in leadership, you're not limited to 14, but 14 is a pretty complex number. Right. So the trick is in golf, you may have that club in your bag, but how well do you use it? How well can you strike the ball when you decide it's time to use that club pro golfers can take one club and hit it about six or ten different ways depending on the situation so leadership attributes in my mind are much the same thing you need to if you want to develop your leadership you need to start collecting an assembly of skills and attributes that fulfill your role as a leader then you need to start practicing on different ways to use each one of those in a certain situation. A quick example, I'll use the, the concept of communication. Most everybody agrees a leader needs to be a communicator. Well, what does communication entail? If you're going to stand up in front of your entire team or bigger, if you've got a department of people, literally hundreds potentially, and you're doing some kind of all-hands meeting, your communication style is going to be one way to talk to that broad audience. Right. You're not going to worry a lot about empathy and sensitivities and things like that. You, you're just going to try to focus on the clarity of the message. So that's a skill in and of itself. But on the other hand, if you are going to have that sit down private one-on-one with an employee, it's a whole different style of communication. You're going to open the bridge. You're going to want it to be two-way. You're going to want to exude some level of empathy and compassion while you're talking to them, even though you, you know, you might be challenging them to perform a certain way. You, you still, it's just a whole different style of communication. 
Sure. So getting good at doing both of those is the, you know, extreme end of the communication spectrum, but that's incumbent on a leader to figure that out. It is, but I also want to, it is, I agree. I want to, I want to get your thoughts though, because it seems to me like to use, to extend your metaphor of the, the golfer, the pro golfer who now knows how to hit six different ways with the same club. They do because they've been doing it for years. They it's it's they didn't wake up one day and have to do that. Right. As often happens in as you said earlier, when people are moving from management to leadership, often they're suddenly being asked to they're being handed a whole new set of clubs and you know better, better figure out how to use them. So I want to first ask about the how can the how can leadership of companies create the environment where managers can lead earlier? Because that it's it strikes me that that's kind of one of the problems, right? They get stuck in these very functional roles. They get handed a set of KPIs, and they have to worry about the triple bottom line and all these things that have usually numeric measurements to them. And then we say, and now overnight, as you were saying earlier, like now suddenly you're supposed to have all these other skills that we didn't train you for. So let's. I want to focus on the leader as well in their own development, but let's start with the corporate environment. How can leaders grow? Leaders earlier in their in their involvement because that's also one of the problems one of the reasons people are leaving is because they they get to a certain level and then they realize they have a great opportunity somewhere else and and if, right. if they weren't trained into that so right. yeah, how can they how can the company do that well i think that question starts getting us into the realm of looking at what the company culture is all about and and back to our early discussion about command and control environment Companies that have evolved using that style, they're pretty autocratic. It's top-down management. And I'm being specific on my words. It's top-down management, not necessarily leadership. And if somebody at the top of the house decides they want to change all of that, it starts by creating a leadership framework. They they need to circle up and they need to agree on some key principles. And this all runs very close to mission, vision, value kind of thinking. But if you, if you take your mission, vision, mission, vision, and value and put all that together, there should be a logical extension of the leadership framework it's going to take to get you there. If you say you want to create a company of highly motivated employees who enjoy working with each other, well, what are the leaders going to have to do to help make that happen? And you can make a short list of key principles that need to become the the mile markers and in, in, the, in the, the measure of how things are happening. And I, I worked with one global brand a couple of years ago who the CEO had just that vision. He said, you know what? All the numbers are telling me we're not going to be able to retain the modern younger workforce. Yeah. These young people coming out of the college campus, we can't use our old culture and, and expect them to have 20 and 30 year careers with us like everybody else did. Right. Right. So we got to change the, the core at the way we do things. So they, crafted a four-part, which ultimately became a five-part message about values. And it did include things like empowerment of the employee, learning, you know, continuous learning, 
and I forget the other three attributes, but but it became the watchword of how they wanted to have all their future leadership discussions. Yeah. And what they realized real or real early in the game, it was one thing to design all that at the top of the house, but now to start disseminating very first fundamental challenge they ran into is the very next level of leadership said, we don't know what that means. We, we see the word, golly, we could sit around a coffee bar and we could have a long debate about what that word really means. So let's talk about what that means. Right. Yeah. So it was a, a two-year training and coaching process to disseminate and distill consistent agreement on what those values really meant. And then they had to get that woven into their annual employee assessment, for instance. Right. And if you're not supporting those values in the way you measure people, you're missing the boat. Yes, I agree. Isn't measurement one of the sticking points or one of the problematic areas? You know, time, scope and money, man, I can tell you if we spent more money or less, I can tell you if it took longer. How do I measure trust? (laughs) How do I measure, you know, these these kind of things that, that we know are the difference makers, but they're harder to measure. How do you? How do you deal with those kinds of questions? Well, in some cases, I'm going to give you an example of how it was applied in this one particular company. Again, part of the command and control mindset, they had a sort of a legacy value system of saying, if we need to make a business decision, we need to evaluate the opportunity and we need to exhaustively research the pros and the cons, the risks, the, the, all of those things and essentially create what they affectionately called the hundred percent certainty answer. Well, guess what? When a new opportunity came up in the market, for instance, there was an opportunity to seize a market segment. They started doing their analysis. They got to 70% in like days just yeah. a day or two, they they could nail 70% of the equation yeah. and they could have a pretty clear go, no go finding at that point. But then they would exhaust weeks and months filling in the rest of the 30% because it needed much more research, much deeper dive. And hindsight said that nine times out of 10, it never changed the decision you had at 70%. Yeah. All that extra time and effort never really influenced what the original indicator was. So as part of this culture change, they said, let's accept 70. Let's just agree. We're going to do the same thing we do getting to our 70% and let's hit the go, go or no go button at that point. And we're not going to penalize leaders for having made that call, even if it fails. So your 70% now said green light go, they went. And if it failed, it cost them money and, you know, broke or didn't arrive as expected. No harm, no foul. You took your shot. That's business. We're good with that. Well, Truth be told, that all started sounding really great in paper and all the team huddles they were having and people were getting energized and motivated and work started happening that way. But 364 days later, they did their annual review. They went back to evaluating on 100% decision accuracy. Yeah. And and all these 70% guys got whacked the first year on their performance. And even, even though they had made millions of dollars for the company. Yeah. I see this a lot. I work a lot with tech companies who are trying to implement agile 
And, and the agile mindset or agile methodology for product creation or software development sounds great until you really get into it. And it means that you're going to take a risk. And I, I think nobody wants to be that 70 percenter who got the pink slip. Nobody wants to be find themselves out. And so, again, back to leadership, really creating that creating that environment of safety and, and, and telling people they can fail and really backing it up. Yeah. Critical. Yeah. And to your question about the trust, uh, you, you may have spoken of this before, you know, in 2018, Google published their famous project, Aristotle. Are you familiar with that work? Uh, remind me. It's it, been a what they did, they went on a journey. They, they realized that for all the effort they put into hiring cream of the cream top-notch yeah. employees, yeah. which is, of course, is legendary. They realized once people got assigned to different teams, not all teams work the same. Right. Some teams performed much better than others, and mm -hmm. they thought that just defied logic. So they embarked on a two-year study. It was published in something called Project Aristotle, released in 2018. And among several factors, they identified the number one prevailing contributor to high-performing teams was trust. I mean, they, they issued the word psychological safety, but when you read all the text, it's good old-fashioned trust. Right. I trust my boss. I trust my coworkers. I trust the system. Right. Now I want to give my discretionary effort to make this be a success. And yeah. discretionary effort is that extra, that 10 or 20% kick-in factor that every human being has the ability to do. Right. It's just whether or not it's called discretionary for a reason. They choose to give it. Yeah. And it's interesting you note, I do remember that, I do remember that study now. And yeah, that's kind of where maybe didn't popularize the term psychological safety, but I think why it's used so well or so so broadly in corporate culture today. But I do wonder if even that is an example of sometimes where we, we feel like we need a bigger word because trust seems too <laughs> basic. Yeah. You yeah. know, if we call it psychological, if we make it sound like something that came out of a peer reviewed study and not just common sense, if I trust you, I'm going to, I'm more likely to give my full effort. If I trust right. you as my leader, as a, a colleague, an employee so, or somebody I manage. Yeah, it's so, so much is, I want to get back to the, the leader themselves, but so much is, is tied up in this question of culture. When you're working with a client and you recognize that culture is the issue, these are really great lessons because we're going to spend the second half talking about, we're going to try to talk to entrepreneurs who are starting companies and learning from these lessons, hopefully. But, you know, it's, it's, it seems to me that a lot of these companies start with these great ideals, but they get caught, even if they didn't start with the command and control mentality, it's almost like there's something in the water. It's it's like there's this broad cultural narrative in the corporate world that seems to creep in. So if you're working with a client and you recognize, look, this isn't this is a cultural issue. You don't need better processes. You don't need you know new technology. You need culture. Where do you start? What are some of the first questions you ask? Well, you, you alluded to it earlier, one of, one of, and this is in no particular order what I'm getting ready to say, but one of the areas where we run afoul of doing the right thing is having to do with compensation structure. As, as you get moved up the management and leadership chain, compensation tends to start skewing toward it's not just base pay but it's it's bonuses and it's other incentives for performance so we do get wrapped up in 
hitting new levels of, of production or, or profitability. And it does become very impersonal. It becomes data driven. And I mean, you know, the numbers are the numbers, right? So right. it's hard to, it's hard to deny what's going on, but the problem is achieving the maximum number for your business requires teamwork. Right. And if the business is big enough, there's no one department that drives the train. They're all contributing factors to whether or not you can make your big company numbers. And I don't see many compensation programs that address that aspect of the overall greater good. Yeah. I just seldom, seldom see anybody allude to that. Yeah. And I haven't worked with them as a client, but salesforce.com may be uh, an exception to that because I, I do think they've got an incentive structure. But it's interesting because if you go back and you look at and you read Mark Benioff's autobiography, I think it's called Behind the Cloud. He talks about how very early on he baked in some of that social good and some of that that culture. He baked in those cultural elements into the company as he was creating it. So it's, you know, it's, it's natural that that's a part of their culture because he, he put it in from the beginning. So let's use that as a pivot. I got a ton of other questions. You know what? I do want to pivot, but I actually want to ask you one more question still sort of in the traditional or in the established corporate world. So if you had the opportunity to coach a late 20 something, early 30 something, what would you say to them to prepare them to move into leadership? If they're, if they're not going to leave the traditional corporate culture and go out and go out and start something on their own, what would you say to them in terms of priorities? What, what would be the top three to five things you would tell them to do to prepare to lead the, the modern company? That's a great question. And not even sure I've been asked it that way before. What, what it comes to my mind is that I, I think. I would want them to describe to me, number one, their own sense of purpose in the world and their structure of values. Yeah. I know just what's been attributed to the younger generation. You know, there is a sense of wanting to make a difference and save the planet and all of those kinds of very important and noble. And I don't want anything I'm going to say to sound like I'm disparaging. I'm not. I think those are great, but my point is those can be starting points for designing this culture you want to have at your company. Right. And it, it, it really does. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you better have your own grip on the value that you want to create in the world. And it, whether it's your product or your service or your own influence, I know being an influencer is a big deal for a lot of people. Right. So, and then fine. What is that? What does that really mean? How do you think that is going to make a difference? And then you need to hang on to it. I'm reminded of a client. He, he wasn't perfectly in that younger group that you're talking about, but he's kind of in the middle. He's between them and me right now. You know, there, there, there are some other levels and yeah. um, he engaged me to work with his company. And the very first meeting I said, what's your vision here? What do you want this company yeah. to do? He said, I don't want to lose any money. And I said, well, okay, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I said, that's a given. Those are table stakes. We're, we're not going to do this if you're going to do nothing but lose money. We're, we're going to yeah. go beyond that. What do you want to do? He couldn't articulate. Yeah. 
and I mean, it was painful. He could never articulate anything above and beyond that. Yeah, it reminds me, I have a, a dear friend who for, for a number of years did financial analysis for bands, rock bands. He had an initial meeting with a with a band that was somewhat well-known. They weren't the Rolling Stones, but they were a, a well-known band. And he asked them what their financial goals were. And they, he, they said, look, man, we just don't want to end up on behind the music. Like <laughs> they don't want to be one of those, you know, gone by the wayside bands. Story band, yeah. Yeah, because they didn't uh, take care of their needs. So I want to switch a little bit into the entrepreneurial space, but I, I want to gain from wisdom, the wisdom you've had both in that space and also in traditional corporate environments. Because something's happening, it seems to me, and I know I know this is a, your belief as well, that there's the pandemic did something. It was a reset. You know, let's start there as maybe a pivot to what the, the world is coming or the businesses that are being created and all that. What happened in those two years, for heaven's sakes, like what did it do to us? Like talk, talk to us about the pandemic and how that changed the rules of, of companies. Well, I, I think that's going to be a, a great discussion for some time to come. And in fact, it was interesting, just happened today, right before I, we got on air here, I had just come out of a lunch meeting I had with a colleague of mine well-educated man. He's, he's a, he's a medical doctor by trade and he's got all kinds of certificates and he's done many wonderful things in the world. We were talking about that and what we talked about and my premise that I gave him was number one, I think at the core of the pandemic experience, we all, every human being faced their own mortality in a way that we've never been challenged to do that before. And for many generations, and I go back several before me, my you know parents and grandparents, etc. You didn't think about mortality until, unless you were a service member in in you know in in one of the big wars, you didn't think about mortality until much later in life when things started happening and yeah. you started having medical issues and you started having challenges like that. You just you just went through life. You never really thought about that, but. But the whole COVID scare forced all of us in some way or another to question that and, and come in touch with it. And quite bluntly, and I'm not a psychologist, I want to stress that, I think people dealt with it in varying degrees as we all do things. Sure. Some were able to look at that and have a healthy conclusion. Others created deeper, longer fear about what it meant to maybe die one day. And they're carrying that with them. And so things like let's return to the office five days a week, people are saying, no, not going to do that. My time in my day is too precious. It's too easy to lose. And we never used to think like that. And we accepted standards for how to conduct our business, which it might have meant a two-hour commute one way to the office. And but we did it because that's we liked the job we had, we liked the opportunity, et cetera. But categorically, people are saying no. Yeah. And I've talked to uh, placement professionals who have said to clients, if you want a hundred percent return to work, I'm not doing your recruiting for you because that's impossible to fill. Yeah. yeah. And it's a fail out of the gate. It's not yeah. gonna happen. So uh, companies are still in some places, they're slow to embrace that and accept it. So, but I think the bottom line is we might be facing a 
turn of the tide that is equal to a big shift like the technology revolution or even the industrial revolution was. And I don't know if you want to call it the workforce revolution or, you know, what name you give it. Maybe I'll claim that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can but that's what, what, what I firmly believe we're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because you tee that up as a, as an issue with the worker. And that's true. My observation is it's also an issue with the company itself and the way they think about their workers. I had a client and I was helping them with a number of things, but one of them was building, you know, getting their workforce back, back into the office. And they had a individual who had been one of their top performers. That individual, when the pandemic hit, moved about an hour away from DC, the area where I live, moved in with their parents and were actually performed even better. But when they were, when this company was enforcing their their return to the office, they were going to lower this person's compensation because they lived in a different st- metropolitan statistical area. And so, even though their their performance and their value to the company had gone up, they had this arbitrary, you would call it, and I would agree, a command and control rule that we pay you based on the zip code of the garage you pull into at night. And so, isn't I mean, I think there's going to have to be both an yeah. employee reconciliation and a, and a company reconciliation to this changing these changing conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to your point, that's a compensation model that's, you know, dated many decades ago. You know, it has merit for some reasons, but now that we've gone to a virtual workforce, it, it's much more compelling to think about the value of the job you're asking a person to do. What does that really mean to the company, that particular role and pay accordingly. And, and I know the flip side of that argument, that compensation model, I, I dealt with this in my, the early chapter of my career when I was in banking, because our bank in Houston merged with a New York money center bank. And there was a huge disparate change in pay scales because you could not hire somebody in New York City to fill a job at at the rate they paid us down in Houston. Houston yeah. And by the way, we were happy where we were and what was going on. <laughs> yeah, you um, thought you were doing great. Yeah. We thought we were doing great. And yet our counterparts in New York got paid quite a bit more. But net net, after you did city, state, and local tax, they weren't getting any better take home than I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, there, there are merits on both sides of that argument. However, just the arbitrary one that, oops, you move. Now we have to drop your pay. It's like, mm, you know, that's going to be a hard one to swallow. Yeah. So you've worked in, you've worked in oil and gas, you've worked in banking, you've worked in a number of different industries. As you sort of scan the marketplace of ideas, what companies are out there? Because even the start, some of the the hot startups are looking pretty tired, like Facebook and all that. Like it's it's looking a little exhausted. What do you see as great needs in the market? Like if 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 somebody came to you and they said, you know, you've had these this you know several decades of experience with the with the marketplace, the corporate marketplace. What are some big needs out there? What would you what comes to mind when I ask you that? I think one of the biggest needs that is there is that, and, and what I'm getting ready to say is an age-old problem. It, uh, it's been present as long as I've been in business in my full adult life. 
I, I hope we can get more enlightened about the so-called generational difference in the workplace, because yeah. now we're dealing with three different, actually four now, I guess, generations in the workplace. And I have maintained a contrarian view of that my whole life. And, and that is, I don't think there is a difference. I think people come to work with expectations and it, it goes back to that fundamental thing we were talking about on building trust. How do you build trust with another human being? You begin a process of questioning. <clears throat> you ask that other person questions. They give you answers. You tick the box mentally or literally. And pretty soon you build a rapport that says, you know, I kind of like you. I think you're a pretty good guy. And now I think I can trust you. And next thing you know, you've got a deeper relationship. Well, the same thing exists in the workplace. Our employees show up with questions. They want, they want answers. That's all they want. They're not trying to particularly assert something. They just need their questions answered. And they may be asking them in a really strange way that nobody else in your peer group talks about. But as a leader, you need to just be quiet, sit down and listen to what that, what's at the root of that question. What is it really about? Give them the best answer you can. And I'm not saying you have to fabricate answers. You have to be able to speak the truth about the situation and let them decide if they want to continue to be engaged there. But the, the notion that, oh, so-and-so is a Gen X or Gen Y and, and, or a millennial and I, I just can't talk to them, that's an easy excuse. That, that's just a cop-out in my book. And I've felt this for a long time, but a couple of years ago, something was revealed to me that I found very compelling. I read a, a writing that was done, and if you just take the text off the page and read it, you'll say, wow, that's the Millennial Manifesto. That's what we know about millennials. That's everything they talk about. That's everything they do and everything they believe. And it's written in that voice. Well, guess what? That piece of literature I'm talking about was the preface to Walden Pond by Henry <laughs> David Thoreau in 1847. Right. right. And... It is. It's word for word, the, the millennial manifesto. Yeah. But I, I love that. It's I love that coming up on 180 years old. And right. um, so it proves the human view of generational biases have been with us for a long time. Right. And I think somebody who wants to be a good leader in their organization needs to rise above all that noise. Yeah, And just accept people for who they are, how they communicate, bring them along, bring them into your fold, teach them, coach them, educate them on what you need done, but don't hide behind this generational bias garbage. Right. Um, right. I'll use that. I'll feel, I feel that strongly about it. <laughs> So what are some of the practices then of leadership? Because the, the leaders that I've seen, you know, I, I had a, a client who was a big security company and the CEO was just brilliant at this. He just kind of, it almost kind of, I know he worked very hard at it. I'm sure he wasn't born that way, but, you know, we, we talked about it's, it's, there's these values and these beliefs that matter. How does the leader show them? How do they demonstrate them? What is that actually like? Give us some real practical tips people can employ if, if they want to be that kind of leader. We still haven't gotten to entrepreneurs yet, but that's okay. If they wanted to be that kind of leader. Like what are some of the, some of the moves they can make? 
Well, if I may, before we get to that, I think we need to back up one step. And as you were framing that question, I was really trying to digest where we were going. And, and one of the things that came to my mind, when we talk about leadership development, we really do need to start with the core belief system that somebody brings to the table. And I love the phrase, the fundamental question is, how do you want to show up? And one way we cannot show up is just 100% of whatever we are. And people say, well, wait a minute, Doug, I'm supposed to be authentic. If, if they don't like the way I am, that's, you know, tough cookies and all that. And I'm going, no, you need to be aware of how you are naturally. And you need to, if you want to be a truly effective leader, you need to adjust that for the outward impression that you're going to leave on everybody. And I'm I'm not talking about fake it till you make it, but I'm talking about being able to be true to your values, but you don't have to be a hundred percent true to your natural personality, right? Your natural personality to keep it really sort of benign and simple. Your natural personality may tell you you're either an extrovert or an introvert. So, natural introvert would rather really not talk to every anybody very often, you know, just bare minimum, whatever that is. That's how I want to talk. Well, as a leader, you're probably going to need to talk to people more than that. (laughs) Right. Sure. So you've got to figure out a way to get, you know, more comfortable with that natural conflict that might be going on in your core personality. So there's a lot of phenomenal tools and ability and um, assessments that are out there to help, identify what some of those personality tendencies are about so that you as a leader who wants to improve your game, you can learn to temper those things. And for the parts you've got that are strengths, well, you know, leverage those, use them more. Right. But for the parts that might be weaknesses or gaps in your leadership, figure out how to get get some help, coaching, training, or otherwise to kind of prop those up and let them be less impactful in the way you show up. I agree. Doesn't some of that though come from, isn't there, don't we have sort of a, some problems with our cultural stories? Like we love to talk about Steve jobs. He hated people. He wasn't, he was unkind to people, but he had this imagine his creative vision. We often forget that Steve jobs had Tim cook right beside him during the the heyday, the, the real growth of Apple. So he had somebody who sort of compensated for him I'm wondering if like, you know, part of the problem is what we think of as leaders. We think of them as, you know, these these sort of valorous people who follow their own path and lead the way and all that. When in fact, the probably the greatest leaders are what it what it was it Robert Robert Greenleaf coined the term servant leadership. Servant leadership. Yep. You know, that's sort of his his deal. And it seems like some of the great leaders are the true servant leaders, do maybe we don't tell their stories enough. I agree with you. And and I think that's one of the fundamental problems with the explosion of, of information, uh, you know, through the Internet or otherwise. We, we hear these stories and, and people's leadership journeys get aggrandized. I mean, I'm thinking about Elon Musk right now and everything he's doing. And so love him or hate him. Jeff Bezos, you love him or hate him and his leadership style, uh, you know. Guys like that, they're they're definitely the good news is they're exponential leaders. They're disruptive. They're 
visionary. They, they've got all those things. But I would argue that probably the vast majority of our quality leaders who have helped companies grow, sustain, maintain reputation, maintain brand value, maintain stock value, all those things are done by leaders we're never, ever going to read about. And they will toil in the trenches. They might become a senior VP or an EVP. They're never going to make it to C-suite. But they have done monumental work leading teams to do great things. And we're probably never going to hear about those guys. Right. You mentioned a word disruptive, which I want to double click on. Because I wonder to a degree as well if we haven't... You know, that's another thing we have valorized is people that could disrupt things, not necessarily improve them. We now can get a a taxi cab or an Uber anywhere. We can stay in somebody's living room through Airbnb. But I mean, how many things can we really disrupt? and, And what does it look like to begin to actually improve what exists, which I know you've spent a lot of time with. So that's why I'd love to I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I You know, it's. It's one thing, you know, I said we were, I threatened to get us back to entrepreneurship, but it's one thing to, to say, screw it, I'm out of here, and then go start your own company doing your own thing. But to really, like, commit to an organization, commit to the people in that organization, and to make that place better, that's a whole different set of skills, isn't it? It really is, and that's much of what I'm saying. I... I I think there's education to be had and there's learning to be understood from these monumental famous leaders. I mean, I go back to like a a Jack Welch or uh, even back in the day, my day, there was Lee Iacocca. Well, you know, he, (laughs) in the end, some would argue he was a giant flame out when it was all said and done, but he sure was making a splash during much of his career. There there are things to be learned there, but I I think the big part is there's so much more work to be done down in the trenches where these middle and slightly upper management leaders are living and working. And I say that because that's where I do the bulk of my work. Have I coached some Fortune 500 CEOs? Yes, I've done a little bit of that. But is that my focus? No. My my real sweet spot is, well, it's two things. I, I do the middle and upper management teams of big, big business, and I do the entrepreneurial, which yeah. we'll, we'll still try to get back to. <laughs> but to your point, I don't. I don't think people have to launch out with the idea that they need to be the next giant disruptor in an industry. Yeah. Kudos to you if you can do that. That's great. But I don't have enough bandwidth in but between my ears to, to tell you what that's going to be and who the next guy like that is. What I can help people with is the simple idea you can make a difference right where you are right now. And that's the question at hand. If your job title says you're a manager or some form of director, executive leader, pick the title In other words, if you've got, by designated authority in the company, you've got people working for you, that's where you need to worry about making the difference. So can anyone be a leader? I believe yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a long-running debate in academia about leaders born or bred, and I've participated in studies along that line. I love to watch the 
academicians get into <laughs> blows over that. And, sure. and I've, I've seen a little bit of that, but I happen to believe it goes both ways. Uh, my experience is, and I've coached some, there are people that show up that are natural born leaders. And quite frankly, they're the hardest ones to coach because they don't even appreciate what they've already got going on. They just do it. So to to dial them in and get them focused on, you, it's kind of like, oh, my God, you know, you're already a diamond. We just need to do the polishing and cutting to make this cutting, yeah. a fit. But others show up and they're a lump of coal. We got to turn them into a diamond, you know, to, right. to even get started. But those that have the heart and willingness, they definitely can learn skills and attributes that can make them be an effective leader. Yeah. So in our couple minutes left, for the entrepreneur, what are the great leadership lessons? Like if you, if somebody came to you and they were an entrepreneur, and I, I maybe misspoke earlier because I work with entrepreneurs of various ages. In fact, there was a big study in, it was in the journal, Wall Street Journal, I believe. You know, some of the most successful entrepreneurs are in their, you know, our age, 50s, 60s, 70s. So there's no, entrepreneur is not an age limited or is not an age bound thing. We tend to think of it as such because because we have the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. But what would you say, what are the great leadership traits or the things, the leadership focuses you would advise any entrepreneur starting out at whatever age and whatever they're wanting to do with their entrepreneurship, even non, even entrepreneurial nonprofits? What are some of the leadership lessons you would ask them to learn from what you've learned from your couple decades in, or a few decades in that? The, the key one is is very foundational, and it is this. If you start a business, it is very common to get quickly buried in the weeds of what it takes to get that business up and running. If, if, you're, if you're like the typical entrepreneur, not necessarily well-funded, you just really have a passion for your idea, you want to get it going, you might be spending your life savings to get it started, you're, you're going to be doing the sales, you're going to be doing the closings, you're going to be doing probably some of the delivery, you're going to be writing the checks, you're going to be worrying about making payroll, all of those things. And you will quickly get consumed by the day-to-day as the business grows. And I used to call it the paradox of success. I learned this in my banking days. I watched companies just really take off and have a nice, healthy rise to great profitability, great revenue growth. But pretty soon they cratered. They just absolutely hit a wall. It, it's like hitting the embankment at 60 miles an hour and crash. Why is that? It's because the owner didn't make the pivot to stop being chief everything officer and start being a leader for the business. Right. And it's a mindset thing that is very important to make. And for most people, it's it's a hard one to make because this thing they've created is their baby. It's, if they've seen it grow up, it's, it's now, you know, 10, 15 years old. It's, it's on its own. It's making decisions. <laughs> and, uh, right. if, if you're not willing to let go of some of the things like I've, I've got a client I was meeting with this morning, they're in a need to hire a full-time purchasing manager and he needs to stop being the purchasing manager, you know? And I think I finally convinced him he's going to do that, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a work in progress. And it's that shift into what is ultimately a leadership gear that, 
that helps the company sustain and move on to the next level. Oh, that's great. I want you to give us a parting kind of hopeful thought. We've talked about a lot of things, some of it, you know, some of it more dire than others, but I want you to give us sort of a parting hopeful thought. Like imagine a company really takes seriously this idea of, of servant leadership versus command and control. What would be your great hope and your great vision for that company? My hope for them was that a they they retain all the wonderful people they've been able to hire and train, and that those people become the biggest advocates and fans of that business. Stay with them, tell all their friends, and and attract their own colleagues that have the same gifts and talents to work there, and allow it to grow organically that way because. Uh, that is actually a, a doable scenario. And, you know, what greater gift could a leader give to his company than have his people be the chief evangelist for hiring new people and, and bring them in. And, and historically and categorically, our equation is kind of the other way around. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that's a place where good, effective leadership can build that employee loyalty and engagement such that the company will grow on its own internally because of everybody really enjoying what they're doing and the people they work with. I love it. Well, Doug Thorpe, this has been a wonderful, this was a really great conversation. I know people can find you at Doug, DougThorpe.com. We'll put all that information in the show notes. You'll be able to find Doug. Is there any parting thoughts or any ways, any ways people else can find you? No, that, that's pretty much it, Will. That's the best place. It has all my links to my podcast and books and everything else. I am on just about every social media channel. It's also at, at Doug Thorpe something. <laughs> you just Google that and you'll you'll find my links for everything. So that, that's really it. Doug, thank you. Thanks for your time, your presence, and your wisdom. All right, Will. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.